I want to ask you to turn with me to the opening chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We're just reading the opening verses of the chapter together. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep these things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty. Linda reading in verse 8, again trusting the Lord to add His blessing to the reading of His Word. The text that I want to draw our attention to this evening in its immediate context were two times this last week quite independently brought before my attention Providences like that tend to get all of our attention. So I thought of turning our thoughts to this portion this evening. I don't know with my broken chronometer how long it's been, but not overly long ago, which means within the decade, I guess, is a good estimate. We looked somewhat at the writings of the Apostle John, spent a little time meditating on even the circumstances that belonged to him when he penned the words of the Revelation. The context of what I want to look at tonight, and really that is the fifth verse that we'll come to. But the context, as you'll recall, is, we might say, both tragic and precious. It's tragic in that here is the aged apostle sent in exile to a mining colony on the little rock ascending from the Mediterranean called Patmos. Doubtless his frame is weary and weak. Don't know what OSHA requirements, rest provisions, dietary needs were given by the empire to its prisoners and exiles in the first century. I doubt the comforts of a modern prison were afforded to John. I say it's tragic and 
yet precious. Here's this one that had leaned on the Lord at the Last Supper. One perhaps from an earthly perspective, the cousin of Jesus, but from a far greater perspective, mindful of who this Jesus really is. I say it's something to think of John's own experience. He's written five decades more so after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. John, late in life, we've paused even longer ago than the first vague time reference as we looked at the epistle to the Ephesians, that big dot, as we suggested, between Jerusalem and Rome in the progress of the gospel into the Gentile world. How prominent that church became that it would be to that church that John would be found after the destruction of Jerusalem and living there in the last many years of his life from that place exiled to this island not far off from Ephesus. I say, think of John. Think of the redirection of his expectations. I mean, of what he expected when the Messiah had come. Again, some of the unknowns with regard to the interval between the advents. They expected a messianic kingdom. The Messiah came, purchased his kingdom, as we'll see. But how all the disciples, and particularly John, who outlived them all by so long, how his earthly expectations had changed. And yet how his appreciation of the gospel, how his comforts had grown as he came even through his sufferings to know more of God's plan. I say the context is, is tragic and yet precious. Here's the last remaining apostle to give inscripturated witness of Jesus. But as we come to the text in particular, and I just again invite your attention to the words of verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I remember... Well, I was about to say early in my ministry, but it was still in seminary days down in Greenville. One of my companions in seminary, which we at times called purgatory, but we were speaking of this particular text, taken with new things we were learning with regard to the mediatorial offices of Jesus, and finding in this text, not explicitly, not by title, but yet, quite clearly, it's not a homiletical stretch of the imagination. It's not some twisting of the words to see in the words of our text all three of the offices of prophet, priest, and king. The faithful witness. Here's a true prophet. The first begotten of the dead. Here is the very center of his priestly work. 
and the prince of the kings of the earth. There aren't even any dots between that and the kingly office at all. When we ponder these descriptions, these phrases, their way of describing those mediatorial offices, the faithful witness. I say consider that. Consider our prophet. Consider Jesus, the Word incarnate. In a world we've so recently paused to find under the description of the prophet where truth has fallen in the streets. You think about many in our generation. Many that don't even have so many pieces of what we speak of doctrinally as common grace. They haven't had stable homes, caring parents, trustworthy guides, even from an earthly perspective in life. Many that could say with Pilate, what is truth? Is there even such a thing as truth? And I wonder how many people in our age have reached that point of despair. We have a faithful witness. We have light that is shining in the midst of the darkness of this fallen and cursed world. Jesus, our prophet. Jesus, God's full and final and only word unto men is ours. He's the faithful witness. And then his priestly work is described with the phrase, the first begotten of the dead. The truth and the power and the promise of the resurrection are all found in him. It's not my purpose. I'm going to come in a moment to the purpose or the point uh, before we come to the table. It's not my purpose to try and follow every thought that is suggested by these offices in this way of their description. But again, remember what we call that apologetic of the disciples when they went forth into the Gentile world. They constantly returned to the refrain, God raised Him from the dead. Again, the resurrection of Jesus is not a simple miracle, if you will, because He was truly God and the power to bring Himself back from the dead, all of which is wonderfully true. But the deeper import of the resurrection is that Jesus succeeded in what He came to accomplish. By His death, He paid the penalty of the sins of His people. He bore that death, and yet He had already merited life for His people. And so death couldn't hold Him. And the fact that God raised Him from the dead is the divine testimony. It is the stamp of the Father's approval. It is the vindication of the success of His work. And to borrow even more closely from the language of this phrase, the first begotten, the firstborn. He's the guarantee 
the whole. He's the surety of all who were in him when he lived and in him when he died and in him when he rose and ascended. Maybe we should have sung, sung, (coughs) were you there tonight? That last description, the prince of the kings of the earth. I conferred with Kevin after the service. It depends on who you ask how many countries there are in the world, so we leave that. (laughs) But the kings of the earth, think of all their designs. Ever just in your meditations, I mean, this gets to be deep and it gets to be dark. But just even think of the horrors and the reality of war. The horrors and the reality of the crimes that permeate this world. What is the goal? What's the end game of the perpetrators of such horrors? Wealth. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. They're people that have more money than they can possibly spend. They commit awful crimes. They're men that have the most power that can be obtained in their varied nations. And yet they lust for more. They're almost eager to crush others underneath them in an assertion of that type of power. The folly, the madness, the sinfulness, the kings of the earth taking counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ. But all of it is in vain. All of it is a futile effort to dethrone an omnipotent sovereign. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority has been given unto Him in heaven and in earth. He is the faithful witness. He is the first begotten of the dead. He's the Prince of the kings of the earth. He is prophet, priest, and king for His people. And yet it's not these precious, full descriptions of those offices that I want us to focus on tonight. It is more tonight to the implications of these offices with reference to us that I want us to take with us as we come to the table. I mentioned several years ago, now I'm sure, a message, a portion of a message from our brother John McKnight in Reformation Bible Church in Maryland. Uh, Just for further notice, that's the place of the Babylonian captivity of the Free Presbyterian Youth Quiz Trophy for the last couple of years. So pray on, study on young people. But he made a comment, and I frankly can't remember whether it was the, the, the point of his message or just a comment introducing his message But to look at the mediatorial offices from our own perspective, 
What are the implications of these offices with reference to us? What is it to me that Jesus is a prophet? That He's the faithful witness? Well, it is to me the answer to the need I have in my own soul because I walk in a willful ignorance. I walk in myself and in my sin in a blindness that I'm happy to pursue. I walk in such a way as that I am a sucker for everything the father of lies wants to tell me. Because he has an ally in my fallen flesh that is happy to believe his lies. Now, I am one as we considered something from 1 Corinthians 2 this morning. It needs the intervention of the Spirit of God to open my eyes, to breathe life into my dead heart and give me ears to listen to this faithful witness. And He is faithful to bring to me in my blindness, in my deception, in my willful ignorance, words of truth. He is a prophet because I need truth imparted to my soul. Let us tonight marvel in a world that is overwhelmed with lies. And let us remember, this is the kind of stuff we preach to our children, our young people. The world's lying to you. Well, it's always good when you're preaching truth to your kids. To kind of have an ear open yourself and let us grasp it. In a world full of lies, what a precious reality to have a faithful witness, a true prophet of God that's ours. He's a prophet because I'm willfully ignorant and blind. He's a priest to me. Why do I need a priest? This is everything. Remember again, in these mediatorial offices, the preeminence of the priestly office. Because what does he speak of as prophet? But his work for us as priest. What does he do as king but wield a scepter that he earned as priest? And so the fact that He is my priest, the fact that He for me is the first begotten of the dead, is a testimony to my defilement, to my alienation from God, for my being cut off from God's presence and having no access because of that defilement, no means of coming to Him until that defilement is taken away. I was unclean and cut off from His presence until Jesus, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Jesus bore my defilement. Here's where the Old Testament Sacrificial system, any emblem that we find in Scripture falls short. 
Jesus is priest. Jesus is lamb. Jesus is all. My defilement, my alienation is removed only because He took it upon Himself and then washed me in His blood that I might appear in the presence of God. He's priest because I needed cleansing. And He's also King. Why do I need a king? Because I'm a rebel. I am bent on rebellion. I am bent on my own destruction. I and my sinfulness, just as others in their sinful, willful blindness and falling away from the true God, we follow a course of self-destruction. It's really a marvel that one of the hardest things to convince the natural mind of is the doctrine of total depravity. Because if you want to speak of it in this way, there's more evidence for that than almost any other truth of the gospel. It's just on display. And we can point it out clearly in individual people. We can point it out in the affairs of the nations of the world. And any honest soul has the most vivid demonstration and evidence of it inside his own heart. Which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I need a king. Because by my fallen nature, By my chosen path, I'm a rebel that needed to be subdued. And yet my king, who wrestled a little bit with the word change in, now I'm going to lose the hymn title. I think we sing it tonight. How sweet and awful. Sweetly drew us in One hymnal has sweetly forced us in another. The truths are the same. I was a rebel until I was sweetly, sovereignly, powerfully, graciously, happily subdued and brought back to Him. Set in a path, set in a condition that the world wants to call bondage. It's amazing people that are caught up in the worst bondage of all think they're free. And they see believers in Jesus that have been set free from that bondage of death and think somehow something's wrong with the freedom they now enjoy. It shows the warped perspective. The one that's heart has been changed. One that's passed from death unto life is happy. Eagerly happy to confess, I needed a prophet. I needed a priest. I needed a king. And Jesus 
is all of these things for his people. A faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, him that loved us. This man that fulfills these offices loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Tonight we come again to his table to partake of pictures. Let us do so as scripture so plainly puts before us. Let us do so mindfully. Let us do so again, each privately, all of us corporately, confessing together again our dependence entirely upon Jesus for our salvation. Let us be mindful of that sinless body broken for us. Let us be mindful of the shed blood of the spotless Lamb for us. And even as we solemnly remember the cost of our salvation, let us joyfully know that He's risen. He's ascended. And He's promised presence with us as we remember Him together. I want to ask you to take the blue hymnal and turn to 238.